0: Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the HEART podcast. My name is James Rudd, I'm the digital media editor here at HEART. Today I'm talking to Dr. Matt Ryan. Matt is an interventional cardiology trainee from London, and he, with his co-authors, Dr. Holly Morgan, Professor Mark Petrie, and Professor Devaka Pereira, have written a really interesting review, which is called coronary revascularization in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. We have a long discussion about this condition, and also about a fantastic trial that this group has been leading uh, in the UK. I hope you enjoy the show. Matt, could you please introduce yourself for the HEART audience? Um, Who are you, where do you work, and what you do?
1: Thank you very much, James. Uh, So first, can I say thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. Um, My name is Matthew Ryan. I'm a uh, South London cardiology trainee, uh, and I'm currently doing a BHF-funded PhD with Professor Devarka Pereira at uh, King's College London and that's based around myocardial hibernation in ischemic cardiomyopathy. Through doing that and once I started the PhD I became involved in the Revive BESIS2 trial uh, which is uh, Devarka is chief investigator for and uh, that was in 2017. Uh, the trial had been running since 2013 but I initially started with local recruitment and then have, uh, have worked through to working on the project management group for that trial and it's through all of that that my interest in this area came forward.
0: And Matt, you with the co-authors Holly Morgan, Mark Petrie, and of course your boss, Professor Pereira, who's a veteran of the podcast, have recently written a review article in Heart, which is called Coronary Revascularization in Patients with Ischemic Cardiomyopathy." And I really wanted to get you on to talk about that because I know, certainly in my own practice, it's a difficult and unresolved, tricky area. Um, perhaps we could start by you giving us some background to this review. Why was it needed, do you think?
1: So I think uh, ischemic cardiomyopathy is, as you say, it's a, it's, a real, it's a real problem. It's a very common condition. We know from the, the National Heart Failure Audit that somewhere between half and two-thirds of patients who have heart failure are uh, have ischemic heart disease as their etiology. And it's a cause of significant morbidity and mortality. There's a lot of evidence that they have worse outcomes than those with non ischemic dielectric cardiomyopathies. But there is a real lack of evidence and that has led to a real lack of consensus on everything from diagnosis to management. And uh, the guideline evidence internationally is therefore very divergent. And so we really wanted to... Uh, write the review because we had felt we'd learned a lot just from the experience of recruiting patients to the trial and everybody on the paper was involved with that uh, and sort of convey what we thought.
0: Perhaps before we go too much further Matt Mm. maybe you could define for us ischemic cardiomyopathy as it appears in the in the literature.
1: Absolutely so ischemic cardiomyopathy at the most simple level is left ventricular dysfunction that has been caused by stable coronary disease. Well, that's how we've always defined it. And we use the term cardiomyopathy within, within our group. And then we try and use the term to specifically relate to patients with left ventricular dysfunction, regardless of symptoms, and then use the term ischemic heart failure for the clinical syndrome. But as with everything else, though, there is a, a real lack of consensus beyond that. And uh, some people don't even consider this to be a cardiomyopathy and uh, and there are reasons for that but at the end of the day this is a disease that's characterized by changes in the in the heart muscle there's a process of hibernation where the myocytes de-differentiate in the face of ischemia and reduce their contractility to sort of favor survival in the absence of enough blood flow and therefore really i think we do consider it a cardiomyopathy wonder whether that it also is in the past because people have felt that coronary disease is a very reversible cause and that if you revascularize people that the heart just magically gets better but again the evidence really doesn't bear that out
0: and we'll come on to that evidence um shortly but I guess one of the big distinctions that it's important to make is ischemic cardiomyopathy versus dilated cardiomyopathy with bystander disease should we call it i think that's what it's called in the literature so you know, moderate amounts or minor to moderate amounts of coronary artery disease. But the primary issue is a dilated cardiomyopathy. And it's quite hard to tell the difference sometimes between those, isn't it?
1: It really is. And on a sort of population level, of course, the more extensive and the more severe your coronary disease is, the more likely it is to be ischemic. And the less extensive and severe, the more likely it is to be a dilated cardiomyopathy. But we know there's a huge number of patients who live in that a gray zone in between where you really can't tell and we don't have any great reference standard tests to say this patient has uh, uh, an ischemic cardiomyopathy biopsy isn't something you can use because it's a, a very heterogeneous process and obviously people have very thin walls and the like and so it, it really is quite difficult often to pin down despite doing a, a range of investigations
0: and is the distinction between those two things important do you think
1: I think it depends on how you're looking at it. I think from a pathophysiological perspective, it, it should be very important. If if myocardial hibernation and the muscle going to sleep essentially in the face of so much ischemia is important, then you can only expect LV, dis- LV function to improve if it is being driven by ischemia in the first place. Yeah. Um, but from a clinical perspective, if, if these people have severe and advanced coronary disease, if, say, preventing infarction is the... The most important mechanism of benefits of revascularization then perhaps it it doesn't matter because the if you have a, a myocardial infarction in uh, either an ischemic cardiomyopathy or a dilated cardiomyopathy, I don't know if it is one is more important than the other. So again, it's just a, a big area of unknown.
0: And I think we could all agree that for both entities, if you like, um, optimal medical therapy, uh, you know, remains the cornerstone of therapies. But y- your review really focuses on whether revascularization of patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy adds anything to that. That's right. Um, and if we think in the abstract a little bit about what the possible benefits of revascularizing someone with ischemic cardiomyopathy might be, could you divide those up into the the different areas of benefit that you outline in your in your review?
1: Absolutely. So there are, as you say, key mechanistic effects of Uh, revascularization that we consider and a lot of them are are unique to patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy hibernation i've already alluded to is the active downregulation of myocardial function and so the the idea is that the heart is uh starts off clearly being altruistic it's delivering blood to the to the whole body but it, it faced with not enough myocardial oxygen demand it will downregulate and favor survival of the myocytes. And therefore, you think by revascularizing, by restoring normal coronary blood flow, that hibernation can be reversed. And there's some very elegant animal models that have come out in the last 10 years or so that have that have really demonstrated that in large, large animal models for the first time, along with all of the clinical experience that we've had in showing that that can happen. So that's often historically been thought as the key benefit. And people have really looked very closely at change in left ventricular function and how that might mirror change in outcome although the links uh for the prognostic outcomes are perhaps not as strongly defined as you might expect the second benefit is then in preventing uh sudden death and looking at the evidence from some of the big trials about half of mortality is split either way between pump failure and sudden death and the ways that you uh improve sudden death again will come down to either modifying arrhythmia, that interaction between areas of scar and arrhythmic substrate, where revascularization may uh, help to prevent uh, ventricular arrhythmias from developing, but also from uh, spontaneous new myocardial infarction. And those, the problem is that those two mechanisms are very difficult to separate. If you look in, uh, the, say, the STITCH trial, which we'll, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll discuss later, Quite a number of patients had sudden deaths, but there was really no way to characterize whether that's an arrhythmia or a myocardial infarction. And so again, that's one of the key uh, sort of mechanistic areas we need to look into. And then in terms of the final types of benefits we're looking for with revascularization, obviously it's then also about symptoms and hospitalization and quality of life. And uh, again, the trials have tended to focus on the, the sort of harder outcomes of mortality although the the early benefits do seem to appear in some of them in terms of hospitalisation and improving pump function is a key part of that. Angina, interestingly, in our experience of seeing patients come through for revived, has not been as typical a problem as you might expect. Again, whether that's because the downregulation of function is designed to prevent ischemia, but of course breathlessness and heart failure symptoms are very significant, uh, and again might relate back to those changes in lv function uh, with revascularization that we were talking about
0: brilliant thanks for covering those in such uh, in such detail matt are there any randomized trials that can help tell us whether we should be a whether we should be revascularizing patients in this uh, with this illness or b uh, the type of revascularization that we should be doing you mentioned three studies in your paper do you want to briefly touch on those
1: yeah yeah that'd be great um, so the first uh, attempt to to try and get some more information in this area was the heart trial, uh, which was UK led by John Cleveland and, and his team. And that was a, a randomized trial. And it was really comparing very early strategy. It was saying, right, if you take people with heart failure and you do angiography uh, with a review to revascularization, is that going to help? Uh, and the trial recruited 138 participants, but then actually had to stop early. Because largely because of STITCH, uh, which the trial come on to you later, starting and, and problems with the recruitment there. Uh, but revascularization could be either with PCI or bypass surgery. But after about 60 months of follow-up, there was no difference in mortality or quality of life between the two groups, although the analysis was very underpowered. That was then followed with the PAR2 trial, which is from a Canadian group. uh, And PAR2 was a bigger trial. It was 430 patients. But similar in in structure to heart, and it was saying if you take patients who've been diagnosed with heart failure, this time apply a PET scan as your first method of trying to investigate them. And how does having a PET scan change what you you do? Uh, That had 430 patients. uh, And again, there was no difference in the primary endpoint to start off with. But it's notable that actually the, because it was a strategy trial, the, the absolute numbers of people revascularized or not were pretty similar between the arms. So something about 50% in the uh, PET-guided arm and somewhere about 35% in the, uh, in the standard care arm, again, either with bypass surgery or PCI, but no difference in outcome in that group.
0: Yeah, and then the, the, the largest of these three studies? Absolutely. So the largest of the three studies was then the
1: STITCH trial, which remains the best evidence we have. Now, STITCH was different. It was specific to undergoing coronary artery bypass grafting, and it was very broad. All the patient needed to have was severe LV dysfunction and some coronary disease that was amenable to bypass grafting. Uh, it was a much bigger study, 1,200 patients, and it started uh, at uh, with five-year follow-up and then ultimately extended on to 10-year
0: follow-up. And can you discuss the main findings? Because I think these do Um, have relevance to what we might do with patients at the moment with this disease?
1: The five-year data obviously came out first, and the primary endpoint of benefit in mortality was negative. There was no difference. Uh, There was a reduction in the composite of death and heart failure hospitalisation at that point, and so because of that, they were funded to go on. So after 10 years, they found a significant uh, reduction in mortality, all-cause mortality, And that was something like a hazard ratio of 0.84 and approximately 14-month-longer median survival in the bypass surgery arm.
0: Okay. And did they find any other endpoints um, heading in the uh, beneficial direction at all?
1: Absolutely. So there was an an even greater benefit in terms of uh, the combined endpoints of death and cardiovascular hospitalisation, so reducing by about a third. Although by that point in the medical therapy arm, 90% 90% of patients had had either uh, had either died or been hospitalized for heart failure which really does highlight the the magnitude of the ongoing problem.
0: Absolutely I guess for a heart failure trial with a, a sick group at the beginning that's a that's a very long follow up isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And I think you you needed that long follow up because it was very apparent from stitch that what happened with bypass surgery was that there was a very early harm uh, that, that patients, uh, something like 10% of patients at 30 days had either died or still were in hospital. And so even with the lower ongoing event rate in the bypass arm, we needed a long period of time in order to, to reap those benefits, as it were.
0: And again, were there any subgroups within STITCH that we found or the investigators found did better than, the, let's say, the overall trial population? Any subgroups that particularly benefited from bypass surgery?
1: There was there was the key group really was that that was defined by age and so as one might expect needing 10 years follow-up in order to derive a benefit that you you needed to be relatively young with a condition like this in order to survive long enough to derive the benefit so stitch already was a young population compared to what we would uh, see generally in clinical practice for a heart failure population the median age was 60. And then Mark Petrie, who's one of the authors on this uh, review article, did a very nice uh, analysis of outcomes by age and essentially showed that the treatment benefit was confined to those under the age of something like 60 to 65. And once patients were over that age, then they were uh, much less likely to derive a benefit and really the outcomes were equivalent. And so I think in in the way we practice, uh, there were other factors as well, things like patients with more severe left ventricular dysfunction, more extensive coronary disease, and those who had a pretty good functional status at baseline. Interestingly, diabetes, ischemia, and viability didn't really inform outcome. So I think in terms of informing our practice, Stitch suggests that those who are candidates for bypass surgery are probably those who are young under the age of 60 or 65, with really quite impaired ventricles and really quite extensive coronary disease. And that is probably the population to specifically target.
0: And I guess that begs the question of what to do with the the older patient who in stitch had a, as you say, an early blip, as it were, um, in terms of either not surviving the, the bypass surgery or certainly having a prolonged admission around the bypass surgery. And I suppose that's the drive really to see whether something that tends to cause far less morbidity, uh, PCI might be useful, and hence the uh, the need for your trial. Um, are there any, before we talk about the study that you're involved with, are there any insights into whether PCI might be useful as an alternative to cabbage in, in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy?
1: I think as, as you've uh, absolutely quite rightly alluded to, the PCI is theoretically feels beneficial. The question is, can you, deliver all the benefits from revascularization without that early harm. Now, the, the issue is that these patients have often very extensive, often very severe and complex coronary disease, and, and often at the levels where we're talking about sort of high anatomic syntax scores and the like. And I think it will really come down to whether PCI can truly be delivered with, with low risks uh, and then whether it can give an equivalent to benefit to bypass, given that it's a very different mechanism of revascularization.
0: So at the moment, um, the, the guidelines, and I think we'll, we'll talk about those perhaps even now, I mean, what, what do they tell us we should do, Matt, with these patients?
1: So the guidelines are are really divergent. Um, the one thing a lot of the guidelines do agree on is that people who uh, have a newly diagnosed with heart failure should be investigated for coronary disease. Okay. Now, how you do that—whether you do that with uh, CT or MRI or invasive angiography—that doesn't seem to be, the evidence. Again, isn't isn't great, but there doesn't seem to be a huge difference. The key thing should be that you just look for it. Once you found the coronary disease, though, that's where they really diverge. So the ESC are very uh, pro revascularization. So they would say that bypass surgery carries a uh, a class of recommendation of one and a level of evidence of B, uh, based on STITCH, and so really saying that. Patients should be bypass grafted, and says PCI for which, uh, you know, really there is no high quality evidence, but gives a class of recommendation of two A. Okay, then the ACC AHA are much more balanced. They say that uh, CABG is uh, sometimes recommended for patients with it be less than thirty five percent. In the absence of left main stem disease and i think that alludes to the stitch data and they actually they they come out right in the guidelines and say there are insufficient data to make any recommendation about pci uh, and then finally the nice guidelines which i guess are the the most relevant to us in the uk are actually very clear that's in the nice heart failure guidelines and they say do not routinely offer revascularization to uh, patients with heart failure and coronary disease on the basis again that as we discussed actually if you delve into the stitch data routinely sending the your your average heart failure patient who comes either into the community or uh, is an acute inpatient with uh, with ischemic heart failure you probably will not be doing benefit.
0: And tell us about the revived BIS 2 study then the uh, study that is attempting to to fill out that evidence base for PCI.
1: So REVIVED is a, a randomized control trial. Uh, it's completed recruitment in March 2020, and it's of, it was of 700 patients total. It was funded by the National Institute for Health Research. Uh, and I should say it stands for Revascularization in Ischemic Ventricular Dysfunction. Uh, Devarca Pereira, who's my uh, supervisor, is the chief investigator in the clinical trials units at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So the patients who come in uh, were enrolled on the basis of having ischemic uh, cardiopathy adjudicated by severe left ventricular dysfunction, ejection fraction less than 35%, uh, having extensive coronary disease, uh, which was sort of either two or three vessel disease uh, worked out with a, with a one Jeopardy score and evidence of myocardial viability uh, in at least four segments, which could be revascularized with PCI. So quite a, a carefully defined and phenotype population. As I said, we completed recruitment in uh, March of 2020 of 700 patients. And I think that was a huge achievement for the UK, both interventional and heart failure research communities in that, if you look at Stitch, there were 1,200 patients, but that was from 40 countries all over the world. The USA and Stitch had 125 patients, the UK, 25 patients. So really for the UK, uh, from about 40 centres here to put in 700 patients was, was really incredible. Uh, the patients are now in follow-up. So uh, there's two years of primary follow-up. So the results are expected in in 2022 to see whether the the addition of PCI to medical therapy uh, does make a difference to outcomes of death or heart failure hospitalisation.
0: So it's a combined primary endpoint, is that right, Matt? That's right. It's a combined primary endpoint. And what are the secondary endpoints? So the, there are a,
1: a number of secondary endpoints. The key ones really are uh, echocardiography. So all patients have had uh, protocol uh, echocardiography at baseline and then at uh, six months and then at 12 months, which will allow us to look both at whether a PCI does uh, affect your LV uh, function in an, over and above uh, the benefits of medical therapy but also obviously then to link outcomes to those changes in in lv recovery which has mm. been one of the other key gaps in the evidence and then also quality of life is a, is clearly a really important one. And we have both the, the EQ5D survey, which is the one used by sort of health economists to work out uh, whether an intervention is cost effective, but then a much more expansive one called the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, which really looks in much more detail into into these people's quality of life and, and then how it's affected by uh, their treatment.
0: It sounds a really interesting study, and I particularly like uh, the fact that you are trying to link, as you say, you know, the viable segments with change in echo parameters afterwards, but then also with with hard endpoints, but perhaps patient related endpoints that they may even prefer, you know, having a better quality of life, less breathlessness, fewer hospital admissions, etc. Mm. Um, and the ischemia trial, again, a, a large study, been in the news a lot, uh, certainly in 2020. Was, or is, or was it of any use in this context in telling us what we should do with patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy, or was it really just confined to those patients with, with normal LVs?
1: So uh, I think that's uh, clearly a really important area to, to look at And ischemia, as you say, been, been huge and important in, in the whole field of stable coronary disease. So interestingly, ischemia excluded patients with injection fraction of less than 35%, but okay. it did include some patients with heart failure. They're small numbers. So, there was a sub study that was published in circulation, I think in July or August, uh, of about 400 patients who either had symptoms of heart failure or had an LV ejection fraction between 35 and 50%. And overall, in that group, there was no benefit. Uh, they dug a little further into a sort of sub study of a sub study and found that, that in patients who had an ejection fraction of less than 45% and symptoms of heart failure, there was a signal of benefit. But the numbers by that point were were really quite tiny so a very interesting uh potentially supportive but i think just highlights the need for for sort of fully well powered studies
0: we need to wait for next year as you say to get the yes. uh, to get some results from your study um and another point that i thought was really important and interesting that you make in the review is about the fact that we we already know that optimal medical therapy reduces all the important endpoints in these patients and you also suggest that perhaps the revasc benefit is so small that it might now, uh, be, you know, uh, completely drowned out by good baseline medical therapy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I thought that was an interesting point.
1: Yeah, it's, it is a, it's a, a critically important area really, because even looking at stitch, which is considered the most contemporary and best randomized control trial, their recruitment finished in something like 2010. And, and you'll be aware that, that Practice in terms of medical therapy, even since then, has come on leaps and bounds with greater numbers of ICDs, uh, the the ARNI class of drugs, SGLT two inhibitors, and so there there clearly is massive benefit to medical therapy in this population, and it's critically important that they get all of that. That said, the outcomes are still really poor, mm. and as we said before. 10 year mortality or hospitalization for heart failure in 90% the mortality alone at 5 years perhaps 50% so the, whilst individual treatments may or may not succeed there is still a huge demand the the it's it's interesting to think about whether you can really overwhelm anything with a treatment effect at the moment when the the outcomes are so poor in uh, in this patient group and i think it just makes the call for more and more research to try and find lots of strategies, whether they are interventional, whether they're device based, whether they're medical therapy, you know all coming together as a community to just try and find something to get better outcomes for this group.
0: And just to finish off, I uh, would certainly like to point readers to figure two in your review map, which is really beautiful and and sort of uh, comes up with a pathway for investigation, testing and management of, of these patients. Uh, and everybody should certainly go and have a look at that. But are there any uh, conclusions or takeaway points you'd like to leave the audience with, Matt?
1: Thank you. i I would. Um, there's I think the the three key things I'd want to to get across are firstly that that diagnosis is really important. And whilst historically there's been a bit of a feeling that well, if if you're not going to revascularize people, why go looking for the coronary disease? There's, there's good evidence that patients whose coronary disease is diagnosed, they get better medical therapy. And so I think looking for it, however you do it, CT, MRI, PET, uh, SPECT, or invasive angiography, just looking for it in the first place is really important. I think secondly, that a multidisciplinary approach, obviously, it's, it's what's said a lot, but it is absolutely key to these patients because they're complex but everyone within the heart team has something to offer. And, and that's not just discussing them in a meeting, but that really is getting them under the care of a heart failure specialist so they can get their medications optimally titrated, getting them to see a heart rhythm specialist, getting them the right imaging, and then getting them discussed and reviewed, but and having face-to-face conversations with people about intervention and surgery so that they can c- consider all the options, particularly where there are gaps and they can really think about it on a personal level. And then finally, it's about more research, and the UK has been uh, a really fantastic place to do trials in, in heart failure. It's been a really fantastic place to do trials and intervention. There are more trials in the pipeline, so I'd just say to everybody that you know where there are gaps in the evidence, be, be open and, and willing to discuss with your patients that they can be recruited into those trials to both get the very best contemporary care and perhaps inform uh, the treatment of the future.
0: Brilliant. Well, thanks ever so much for your time, Matt. It's a great review. I will put links in the show notes for the podcast. And if it's not free already, I can't quite remember. It certainly will be free for a few weeks after release of this podcast. But thanks very much for your time.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed again for uh, for having me on. Thank you.